Well, I was born too late to see man walk on the moon for the first time. Missed an awful lot of significant events and movements in American history. But when I was a little boy, I got to experience something amazing, which was really the apex, the high point of the glory of what we would call the age of the American shopping mall. Right, the, the early 80s, I mean, the mall was so amazing, especially around Christmas time. There's different Santas all over the place. There's, there's all sorts of decorations. I, I remember the mall. I remember the sound and the sight of the, the big uh, fountain in the middle and the smell of the chlorine. I used to, we used to go to Hampton Square Mall, not far from our house at all. It had anchor stores, Kmart and Weekman's. And pennies or something, I don't know. And, and, and all throughout, I remember the, the smell, the blend. Not only the chlorine, but just the smell of commerce. And also the smell of hot Sam soft pretzels. And also the smell of pipe smoke. As these awesome old guys sat on the fake leather couches and smoked their pipes inside. Because it was the 80s and they could. <laughs> I remember how glorious it felt going to the mall. And I also remember how sad it was when another mall opened across the river and began to siphon away business and businesses from our mall. And it got smaller and sadder. The building was the same size, but the usable part of it. And eventually, it became just like some, some sad local government offices and this Chinese restaurant that had been shut down like six times by the health department. And occasionally, like a, like a booty boot camp or something would come in for a minute and then leave. And, and a few years ago, our local business mogul, Art door suggested perhaps he was going to buy the place and breathe new life into it and make it great again as Herod restored the glory to the temple with gold but he never did and you know the last time I drove by there I went up into the parking lot and it was like it was like driving into like Chernobyl or something it was was, this parking lot was cracked and cragged there were like BMX bike riders doing jumps over the 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 things and 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 it was just it was so sad and depressing but really there were giant holes and gaps in the concrete and there was a spot where up out of the middle of the parking lot came a tree like a real tree it wasn't full size yet but it was it was getting there it was it was almost beyond sapling and you know i immediately thought of this text because that was the most depressing sight you know people go to these malls now and take pictures uh because they think they're hauntingly beautiful you can find all sorts of them online these, these malls that are abandoned and and decaying but in the midst of that decay and that that just loss of what was in my mind once glorious there was new life. There was something springing up. And I thought in this kind of college sophomore way, wow, that's, there's meaning there. That's something. But then I remembered this passage and thought there is. There, there is a reminder. You know, you could pave the entire continent and eventually the cracks would form and life would come out. And here we see in Isaiah 11 that God is very particularly and intentionally bringing life out of something that was dead. It's this beautiful thing to think about during Advent. And you know, I I love that we live in the Northern Hemisphere, where the church year, which as Baptists we do kind of only follow in broad strokes, but still, the church year kind of fits in, in harmony with nature. As we're in the middle of Lent, headed toward Easter, things are starting to be born again. We see buds coming out on previously 
barren trees. We see flowers starting to hint that they're going to bloom. And then if all goes well, we'll get an Easter like last year where it's beautiful and sunny and you hear birds chirping and there's new life reminding us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then during Advent, it's the opposite. It's when things begin to slow. The, the leaves have fallen from the trees. Things slow down. They get colder. Snow falls. The snow is coming, my friends. And we go inside. And we, and we look inside ourselves during this time of anticipation and, and self-awareness and, and preparation and waiting. And when it seems bleakest, just a, a short time after that longest night of the year, that winter solstice, we have this celebration of Christmas. When we remember, yeah, it's dark, but the light is coming in the darkness. And we light candles together and sing Silent Night. And it's all planned so wonderfully and perfectly. And it reminds us that when things seem to be at their bleakest and darkest, after 400 years of silence, not a peep from a prophet, with Rome bearing down in oppression on God's people, Christ was born. A shoot coming up through the snow. Out of death comes life, out of barrenness. And this passage is a beautiful reminder of that. It begins, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, in order to fully understand this, we have to see what comes before it. That's rule one and two and three, remember, of, of Bible study. Context, context, and context. What comes before it is Isaiah talking about God bringing judgment on the enemies of his people. He, talks, he, he pictures the Assyrian armies, which were the greatest threat at the time, as the cedars of Lebanon. These enormous trees that everyone knew. They were legendary and they grew thousands and hundreds of thousands of them thick and enormously tall. And yet, in this passage, in, in chapter 10, just before this, we read about them being pruned and pruned and pruned down to nothing until they're nothing but a bunch of stumps there. Behold, the Lord of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And yet, after that, it's clear that something, and we know now because we are looking back at it, Babylon will come in and timber, bring down the great and mighty tree that is the, the Davidic line. King David and his descendants, who had been given a promise that, that their, their throne would never be completely barren, that there would always be hope that one is coming. And we know that it was Babylon who came and destroyed the temple who took the people captive, who turned the, the throne into a puppet of their own government. And even when the people came back, they really never came back. The glory never returned even when Nehemiah and Ezra and the, the rest of them did. And so it's the whole scene is just barren and bleak. You've got the enemies of God, just as far as you can see, stumps. And then you've got the people of God also, just a, a faint shadow of their former glory, a stump where they can say, well, this is where we used to have our glory, our king, our empire even, to the glory of God. It's dead. There's no fruit there because no trees are growing. There are no animals because there's no shelter for them. There is, there is no timber with which to build a house. It is, a, it is as depressing as that parking lot 
around the abandoned Hampton Square Mall, which at one point they redubbed Hampton Town Center, town with an E, center, spelled the British way. And oddly, that didn't breathe new life into it. (laughs) But here we have this barren picture. And peeking up out of the decaying stump that was David and his descendants and their glory comes a shoot out of this once great tree. And the stump becomes a wonderful source of life. And this can even happen truly in, 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 uh, in nature where a stump will begin to rot and it almost turns into its own self-contained kind of compost heap. And out of even the, the root structure that was there before it starts to draw nutrients and, and, and a shoot can come up. And the Davidic line, which was down but never out, is now come back is now here in the ultimate Davidic king, a branch. Now, a branch is a significant messianic title, by the way. It's not just here. It's many times throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. We see in Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen. in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This comes up again and again. He's called a shoot or a branch, called both of them here in verse 1, and makes it clear they're interchangeable. You may remember when we studied through the book of Zechariah some years ago, in Zechariah 3. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The Hebrew there for the word branch is natser. Can you say that with me? Natser? It's like N, and the T-S letter, and then R. Natser. Nice. All right. You know that one. You're like, why are you teaching us this? Because you already know it. You've heard of Nazareth. Now, now you, you remember how we read in Matthew 2 that Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And of course, our English speaking in the Midwest, we've turned it into like Nazareth all nasal. But <laughs> same thing. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, the evangelist writes. He shall be called a Nazarene. And you know, skeptics have pointed at that. That's nowhere in the Old Testament. He shall be called a Nazarene. Oh yeah, it's right here in verse 1 of Isaiah 11 and, and many other places. That he will be the, the branch, the Nazar. And, and now he's, he's living in this place named after a branch. We've got West Branch here in Michigan. They just said it was his branch, city of the branch. And he was a branchite. He lived there. Even in his growing up in this nowhere town with a horrible reputation, prophecy is being affirmed and fulfilled. And that backwater town, by the way, is kind of the point, at least part of the point of this prophecy. Not only that this new life and new hope would come up out of the the ruins of the old, but that it would come up in a way that was not impressive, at least not at first. A little shoot, a little branch, from the mighty stump of what was once a great tree. You see, during a time of stumps, this little shoot kind of blends in, in being unimpressive. Because the house of David has, has been hewn low. And we see how low when we look at Mary and Joseph. Both of them, of the Davidic line. And, and what, what, they got like a palace? No. A big house? No. A donkey? Maybe. At least if you believe your uh, little creches at home. But what they do have is a promise that Mary will give birth to this branch, this shoot, this Messiah. And so, so we read about the lowliness 
What has, what has become of this great tree? When we read in Luke chapter 2, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and placed him in a food trough because there was no place for them in the inn. This little shoot didn't appear to be strong enough to deliver anybody. Like if you tripped and grabbed at it, it would just break off. In fact, shortly after he's born, he has to be rescued himself from a king who wants to kill him, Herod the Great, and taken to Egypt. And so there's nothing special about him. If you saw him, you wouldn't think anything special about him. Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. When you see paintings of this is what I think Jesus looked like if he's too handsome, start over. He had no beauty, no form, no, nothing that should make us desire to, to gaze upon him. Not from a human perspective anyway. And so he's able to sneak in under the radar and come into our midst. We just watched The Nativity. It's a Christmas movie uh, last Sunday. And there's this wonderful scene. It's not exactly in the scriptures, but it kind of sums up this whole thing where they're on their way to be counted for the census. So Mary and Joseph and Mary, very, very pregnant, are walking into Jerusalem on their way to Bethlehem. And at the beginning of the scene, Herod the Great and his son Antipas are discussing how can we snuff out this hope of a, of a king, a Messiah who's going to come and become the king of the Jews. How do we deal with this? How can we find him? How can we kill him? And as they're discussing this, they walk right past Mary and Joseph, and therefore Jesus, without even a thought. They didn't notice him. There was nothing about him that they should, they should say, wow, you are pregnant with the king of the Jews. There's nothing, nothing about where he'd say, wow, your parents are impressive, and obviously they have a large following. And yet later, Herod is losing sleep when he hears stories of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is up in Herod's kitchen because he has become that great and mighty tree. He was, however, from the beginning, just a little shoot, an inconvenient, an unplanned pregnancy, a, a peasant child, and then a refugee in a foreign land, a carpenter when he grew up in a nowheresville town that no one thought anything of. And there was actually a phrase that said, a saying that said, can anything good come from Nazareth? But that shoot became the greatest tree the world had ever seen. Looking forward then, we begin to see of his greatness in this passage. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That's an important phrase. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. It's the same Hebrew word that's used during the flood story and when the flood stops moving around and floating around from here to here to here to here and it comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And now it's there and as far as we know, you know, whatever's left of it somewhere up there and there's always people looking for it. But it's important because it did not merely come for a time. When you read the Old Testament, God's Spirit comes upon people for particular things in particular times and then seems to leave them and move on. And, and it's not something that, that you can count on. And yet this Messiah will usher in an age of the Spirit where the Spirit will be upon Him. This is how He begins His ministry, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me in the teaching in the synagogue. 
And so we even hear in this passage, we could, we could unfold all these different things, but we won't take the time. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. Here, here there are seven titles of the spirit that are given, reminding us of the sevenfold spirit, the absolute completeness that Jesus has with the Holy Spirit, the unity of one essence with the Father and with the Spirit, and adored together with them. We remember the seven spirits in the book of Revelation, and it's the same idea there. He will be supernaturally endowed by this sevenfold Holy Spirit of God. He will know God and make God known. He will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord will be his delight. It says reverential fear, obedient fear. Well, all humanity is in rebellion against God, this branch will come and he will be in perfect submission and obedience to the Father, even though he himself is God the Son. He sets aside his glory, considering equality with God not something to be grasped. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall destroy the wicked. There's an emphasis here on righteousness and justice because the the rulers in Israel, when this was written, and even when Jesus came on the scene, did not have much of either. It was a rigged system. The poor and the oppressed got poorer and more oppressed, while those who had got richer and more powerful. Jesus would come... And he would not judge like that, according to human sight. He would not, he would say, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgments. The branch, we're told, would come and be a just judge and ruler who would protect the poor and the meek and the alien because he had been one of them. Indeed, he was, even as he carries out his ministry. And he will punish the wicked and destroy them. So they will take advantage of the poor, the widows, and the orphans no more. He, he's coming, this first coming, Jesus says, I'm, I'm not coming to bring judgment. I come in peace. And his ultimate goal is peace when he comes again. We see that laid out in the next four verses as there's this apocalyptic vision of the world to come. The lion lying down with the lamb. The, the toddler and the venomous snake playing together. And we think to ourselves, if only we could have this now. Well, Christ came to begin ushering in that kingdom. He left us to continue that work. And when he comes again, he will consummate it entirely. But notice when he came the first time, so, so Jesus is born. And who do the shepherds see? Well, they see first an angel. And then they see scores of the heavenly host. What is a heavenly host? It's an army. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies. So you got an angelic army. That's often bad news for the people who see the angels. That's why when they're delivering a message, they're like, no, don't worry, don't be afraid. One angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So you got a whole host of them. It could be really bad news for you. Yet they say, fear not. We're not here to unsheath our swords and bring judgment upon you. We're just here to sing. We're just here to And we're singing about peace on earth. Good will toward men on whom his favor rests. He's come, and he will come, and he will bring peace. 
Then he brings it full circle as we look at this 10th verse. Back to Jesus. Back to the branch. Back to who he is and what specifically he has come to do. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He will stand as a signal for the people, permanently and prominently, like a banner for a military campaign. So they can look to it and rally around it and come to the center. Now we've got banners here. They say, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Maybe you didn't know what they meant. They're not permanent. They only put them up at Christmas. But this is what they're all about. And he will be lifted up. Now Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He said he would be. He said, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all peoples to myself. It won't be limited anymore to just Israel and those who choose to join Israel. But all the nations, it's the same word, by the way, as all the Gentiles. This is something that begins as soon as Jesus is born. Hey, we saw the star way out in the east. And here we are to worship him. He was lifted up on the cross in shame. He was lifted up from the grave in resurrection. He was lifted up at the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And he is now forever lifted up in glory at the right hand of the Father. And and in all of this, he is drawing people to himself. Paul quotes him, uh, Isaiah, in Romans 15, right from this verse. And he says, again, Isaiah tells us, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. And Paul understands himself to be living in this messianic age. This time that was expected throughout the Old Testament. In which Gentiles would come to know the true God through this Messiah. It begins with... The kings, the magi that come from the east, and then it continues on throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts until Jesus' great commission to us to bring the Gospel to the ends of the earth is well underway. And the final words here in verse 10, His resting place shall be glorious. I've heard some people kind of bouncing that one around recently when they opened up the tomb in the midst of the the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And saying, look how glorious his resting place, the tomb is. And, and that was a very brief resting, that one. It's not, I don't, I don't believe what is being spoken of here. We read in the Old Testament, the resting place of the ark of Yahweh is in the temple. In the midst of the temple, right there in the, in the holy of holies. And now the resting place of this branch, this Messiah, who has the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Holy Spirit resting upon him, is in his church which now is mixed with error and unbelievers and imperfect, but will be in eternity purified and will glorify Him. So Isaiah here pictures death and resurrection for us. This tree is cut down, but out of the death comes life. And this reminds us exactly what the gospel is about, and not in a general way, but in a very specific way. That Jesus came and bore our sins on His shoulders because you and I could not do anything to get rid of them. Even our attempts to make right our transgressions just dig us deeper into that hole. Jesus came and bore the sins on His shoulders, died a sinner's death, was raised again to new life. And notice here that in verse 10, He's called the root 
of David. That's weird. Because in verse 1, he was the shoot. So he's, he's the shoot growing out of the stump. He's the root that's feeding the tree that's now the stump. He's the one who brings the fruit, root, fruit, shoot, the whole thing. He's, he's the whole nine yards. Jesus is at the center of all this. And, and you say, how can it be that he's both the root and the, the shoot coming out? And Jesus used that, by the way, to stump his enemies. You remember this? They came to him. They wanted to trap him with his words. They're asking him difficult questions. In Matthew 22, he said, all right, I'll answer your questions if you answer mine. How is it in the Old Testament that David, King David, says, or is said of him, the Lord says to my Lord? How, how can that be? How can David, who, who the Messiah is his son, then call his son my Lord? That seems backwards. It seems like he's sort of both the source and the offshoot. And his, and his enemies were like, we don't know, and they just kind of wandered away. But we see this again and again, the last few verses of the New Testament, of the entire Bible. Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is the cornerstone and the capstone. He is our source, the source of life and all that is good and our destination. And so, we see in Jesus' ministry... Because of this, because it's all about him, he looks out at a world that is nothing but just leveled trees and stumps. That is nothing but depressing, abandoned shopping mall parking lot. And instead of saying, oh, this is no good, we're going to have to dig the whole thing up and destroy it, he is moved with compassion. Jesus' ministry recognizes that there is new life for all who will turn to him. So there's nobody who's beyond grace from Jesus' point of view. Lepers. If you were a leper and you got too near anybody, they would kill you. Jesus walked right up and touched them and healed them. Prostitutes who had been put outside of society. He would walk, he would let them wash his feet. We, we've got drunks and cheats and tax collectors and those who were filled with demons and Jesus put his hands on them and said, be clean, be healed. Your faith has healed you. So how then, even during this period of Advent, can we, deep in our hearts and in the back of our minds, see certain people as being beyond the reach of God's grace? Maybe not beyond entirely, but like we were talking about in Sunday school, if God was going to save them, He would have done it already. These people, they're too far gone. God is not about to reach that far out and pull in someone who is that out there. And yet when we watch Him, we see that's precisely what Jesus does at every turn. His disciples are continually shocked by who He chooses to associate with and how He chooses to bring them into His family. Everyone that they thought was a lost cause, he did not. You know, in some Christian traditions where, where they will pray to saints or, or ask saints to pray for them on their behalf, Jude Thaddeus, brother of Jesus, is the patron saint of lost causes or, or hopeless cases. And so people will, you know, mess with each other. Oh, yeah, I've, I've started praying to Jude Thaddeus that you'll start putting the toilet seat down. You know, that kind of thing. And... And the reason for that is, by the way, it's interesting, that, that it, way back when, 
everyone was afraid that if they prayed to that Judas, they would accidentally pray to Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. And so nobody did. And the idea was that, that poor Jude Thaddeus is up in heaven and he's so neglected and it's like, he, he says, if anybody even checks in with me, I'll do whatever you want. So he becomes this catch-all kind of thing. Well, we do not pray to saints. We do not go through anyone else to get to the Son. We go through the Son to approach the Father. We go directly to the shoot and the root, to the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the source and the destination of our lives. We go directly to Jesus for deliverance. We go to Him with our prayers, and we know that He hears us, and we know that to Him there is no such thing as a hopeless case or a lost cause. Maybe we need to hear that this morning because we've been allowing ourselves to think that way. Maybe you need to hear that this morning because in the back of your mind you're thinking maybe you are a hopeless case or a lost cause. You've fallen into that sin again or you've fallen away again or you've freaked out on your significant other again or whatever you've done and you think, you know, I'm, I'm just hopeless. You're not. Imagine again those, those stumps all cleared away and those people who knew what the cedars of Lebanon had once looked like. It looked hopeless. That, that mall parking lot with all those, those big cracks and crags and it looks like some kind of Soviet-era breakaway republic this currency is $20 billion is worth 25 cents. And you go, this, just forget this. And out of that comes a, a branch, a shoot, a bit of hope, and a bit of life. That is our hope during Advent. That is what we remember. That is what we anticipate. We remember that when all is lost from a human perspective, when Jesus says, some things are impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. That Jesus Christ came, he bore our sins, he rose again, and he calls all to the cross. He, he's lifted up and calls all peoples to himself, and all who will come will be saved. If you will come and put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and trust him as your savior, you will be saved, washed, made clean, and made into a new creation. That is the good news this Advent. Let us live by it and let us remember it as we go to Him and participate in His body and His blood in Holy Communion. As we go out those doors and walk amongst an awful lot of people who are walking in darkness, remember it was the darkest when the light came on the scene. And we are here to show them the light. Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would be the kind of people who have a Christ-like heart where we look out into barrenness and don't lose hope. Where we look where there was once a great a great forest. And Lord, we think about the many great and enormous churches that have, that have shrunk and begun to disappear in America. And we begin to think, oh, this is hopeless. We're moving in the wrong direction. Perhaps the timing is off. Perhaps this is it. Lord, may we remember the story, the lesson of Advent. The lesson of the stump and the shoot from the, from the stump of Jesse. May we remember that out of death comes life because you are a God who can do all things. In your holy name we pray. Amen.